Hey, hey, it's the Productized Podcast. My name is Brian Castle. Thanks for tuning in today. Today, I'm talking to my friend Robert Hartline. He and I go back a couple years now. I first met Robert at Big Snow Tiny Conf, which is the ski and snowboard slash business mastermind getaway that I co-organize up in Vermont. He and I uh, met there. We also went to the one in Colorado. And so it's been really good to get to know Robert a, a little bit over these past few years. He's built an amazing, amazing business. It's grown just really far beyond what most of us in these online spaces can really imagine for ourselves. And, and that's why talking to him, you know, you just learn so much. Beyond growing a massive chain of wireless stores from one up to a group of 13 in the Nashville area and today up to 51 stores, that's just one part of his business. He's also running a, a successful SaaS company called Callproof for sales teams and a, a rideshare app and so many other projects and businesses that he's working on while being able to balance all that time with family and time off and focusing on the things that he's good at where he really adds value like thinking strategizing learning and so we cover a lot of ground in this in this interview especially around personal growth and learning how to grow as, as a business person, but then we spend a large chunk of the interview just digging into sales. That's probably the superpower that Robert comes to the table with, both personally as a salesperson himself, but then even better at training and finding and hiring salespeople so that you can truly scale the business. We dug into comparing B2B to selling to consumers, selling on the floor of a retail shop versus selling online or over the phone and uh, just some amazing stories along the way. So without further ado, be sure to tune into this one until the end. You'll learn a ton. Here's my conversation with Robert Hartline. Enjoy. All right, I'm here with Robert Hartline. Robert, how are you doing? Man, I am doing great, Brian. Yeah, great to, uh, great to catch up with you. You and I spent some time snowboarding, skiing out on uh, at Big Snow Tiny Comp a couple of times, both in Vermont and Colorado. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, that's a lot of fun. You know, I've been looking for a place to ski with entrepreneurs, and I literally had Googled that probably five or six times before finally, I guess it came up through a Slack channel is when I heard about it. Yeah, I mean that's amazing. You're probably one of the only people who actually like, googled it and came to us that way. But I'm really glad that that I got to meet with you know meet you and hang out with you a couple times because you have just such an interesting business and story. And you know you're one of these guys. There's so many people like you in our communities who are just out there killing it, growing growing really exciting businesses. But not many people hear these stories, so uh, I think it'll be interesting for our listeners. And I'm certain there will be plenty to learn here. So you know, why don't we just start off? Uh, you know, tell us what you're focused on these days. I know you're doing a lot of different things. How do you describe your business today? Uh, well, how I would describe my business? Uh, well, I usually say that I own a chain of retail wireless stores, and um, but I'm passionate about building software products because I actually enjoy the creativity that goes into building a tool to solve a problem. Uh, but I don't necessarily enjoy a business with lots of people. And that's what I really am intrigued with software because uh, you could run an enterprise with a small amount of staff to run your business. Um, so I kind of wear these uh, chain of wireless stores. We just to give you some perspective, I had 13 locations 18 months ago. No, sorry. Uh, yeah. 18 months ago I had 12, 13 locations. And, and that first batch was in the Nashville. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so 
I'm in a, a group called EO, sat through a presentation on the topic of acquisition and got really interested in like, well, gosh, I could go out and acquire other people. And so through some acquisitions, we're up to 51 locations in that business with 360 people. So just in the span of the last 18 months, you went 1351 locations. Yeah. Yeah. So that business is very complicated with lots of different layers of management to keep running. But I spend most of my time on the other software products that I'm building, which really, you know, I'm not building tools for other types of businesses. I'm really focused on building software tools that I can use as a owner and operator of a business. And so, you know, I'm, I'm trying to build stuff that I need for my business. And if by chance someone also can use it too, and then I'm selling it. Yeah. You know, I, I think in this interview today, we're definitely going to dig into sales quite a bit because I know that you have a strong background in that. You have a big focus on that today. And, and I know that one of your software tools, uh, CallProof, is focused on uh, a tool for sales people and sales teams. Why don't you tell us a, a bit about that? Yeah. I mean, one of the biggest challenges that entrepreneurs face is once they've built a company, they have many different hats they wear. And one of them, most of the most successful people I've met the hat they wear the most is the salesperson hat. And once you get an organization that's too big for, for you, you start hiring people. And a lot of times you'll let go of the sales piece, which ends up causing a lot of uh, distractions with any kind of organization. So, you know, back in the day when I started my wireless business, I had B2B outside salespeople. I noticed that as they would leave, I would always get a hold of their cell phone. And I used to literally give a, a cell phone number to a sales guy. He would sell. If for whatever reason he didn't work out, I'd get a hold of his phone. And and I started noticing when I would take an underperformer and he got let go or he quit or whatever, I'd have his phone for the weeks after he left and notice that his phone never rang. You know, active salespeople, they got people calling back. And, and I noticed as like, gosh, a key determinant on whether or not a person is being successful is their act activity. And I said, well, gosh, what if I just looked at their calling history? I would know whether or not they were actively out promoting my services and calling people and making prospecting calls. And so I decided that I needed to build an app that automatically took the call history, throw it up into the cloud, match it with known clients and prospects, and give me a daily report as an owner or sales manager to see what kind of traffic and activity they did uh, for the day. It's awesome. So it's like not only the bottom line sales that they're driving, but you also want to see the activity because that'll kind of show a clear story, the whole thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the challenge with most sales organizations is your sales cycle aren't within hours. And if you ran an e-commerce, you may have a very short sales cycle when you're doing transactions. But when it comes to B2B selling, and if, if it's really relationship-based selling where you're calling onto a business to sell your widgets, and the only way you get in that business is through literally knocking on the door and asking the person in charge of buying janitorial supplies. And then you need a way to monitor that sales cycle because the challenge is if you have a long sales cycle of, say, 90 days and they're not closing within 90 days, the question is, well, what's wrong with the salesperson? Why aren't they closing anything? And the question should be, what is the activity that you did to warrant a sale tomorrow? or the next day. And so tracking the activity is important. That's why I started, you know, this journey to build a product to solve my own pain point. 
Awesome. So I, I definitely want to dig more into just, I've got a ton of questions around sales itself. Uh, before we get there, I still want to get kind of like the lay of the land of where you allocate parts of your time these days. So you've got obviously the big line of uh, mobile stores, uh, you know, wireless stores that, you know, that's obviously a pretty huge business. You're doing this call proof software business. I know you're doing like a ride share application. Is that still like an active thing for you here? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, a lot of people want to know, like, well, what do you what do you spend your time on? I'm very careful with my time. I, number one, I do not commute. I'm allergic to traffic. I don't get into traffic. You know, yesterday I had to take a trip to I'm picking out some new locations in Birmingham and I got on a Greyhound bus at 325 in the morning. You busted down there? Yeah, I busted it down there. And uh, I got so much work done. It was the most efficient use of my time. Otherwise, I would have been behind the wheel and I can't really work behind a wheel. But I create time through time shifting. You know, one of the tools that I use, a lot of you programmer types are all into the Slack stuff. And uh, I can't get into Slack. I've tried to get my team into Slack. And then I use Marco Polo. It's just a video walkie-talkie app that allows me to literally talk to people, talk to groups of people, and really get my ideas in front of people uh, by using time shifting, which is the idea of, you know, I don't call people like if I were to talk to you to talk about a, an issue or a challenge, I would Marco Polo you a, that message and you would get to back to me at a, at another moment. So I, I the only thing that we have control over is our time. You know, all the other aspects of our life, you know, our families are tugging on our time, our customers are tugging on our time. Um, there's a lot of external sources, but, you know, people like you that made decisions to work differently. And, you know, having even a dispersed workforce where your team is all over the place, you have prioritized having family important and having them close and being able to work in between that family time. So I do the same thing. I got an eight-year-old and a five-year-old, and they suck all the living life out of me when they come home. And it feels great, and I have a lot of fun with them. But if I was to do business... Like, you know, our fathers chose to do business when they were in business. You know, I would never get anything done. I would have, you know, a couple of locations and I'd be, you know, working my fanny off, working with customers all day. And I've chosen to do it a little differently, though. Yeah, you know, I, I couldn't agree more. And being able to have the flexibility and work from home, it, it's great. And I really wouldn't trade it for anything else. But at the same time, it could certainly be a, kind of a blessing curse, <laughs> you know, being that close. And, but, you know, we have our separation and plan our time accordingly and everything. But, you know, sure. I mean, even I work a pretty standard-ish, like 40 hours or so a week I devote to work. But if that, if those 40 hours were in an office somewhere, you could easily call that 50 or 60 hours of being away from the family and doing other, being able to take half days and stuff. Um, so actually speaking of that, I, I want to kind of go back in your story. Like, so how does somebody get to this point where you're, you know, you're managing all these different uh, all of them are like highly successful or highly active projects and businesses. You know, where did you actually start out? Like, where, so I mean, even going back further than than work. Like, so are, are you from the Nashville area originally? Well, I grew up in Germany and um, thought I wanted to be in the music business. So, like everyone else on planet Earth that lives in Nashville, Tennessee, I also came for music and I went to a, a university south of Nashville called MTSU. And I learned quickly that, number one, I don't like country music. And number two, I don't play guitar. So I really didn't even fit. What did you do in music? Uh, I wanted to do production and, you know, produce. Dude, that's the same as me. I went to school for that stuff. And I, I thought I'd, I would do that for a living. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, all through high school, I DJ'd. You know, as soon as the Amiga came out in '85, I had an Amiga. All the computers. I was big into electronic music, techno, and all that stuff. And in Germany, it's like way bigger than has ever been over here. So, but um, that's fun, enjoyable, and I tried to get back into it. And I just don't have the time like I used to. But um, I thought that's what I wanted to do. But you know, one thing led to another, and I I decided that number one, I, I wasn't learning an awful lot. And I'll tell you a story, what got me into sales, what got me interested in selling is one day I'm sitting in my living room and I hear a knock on the door and this guy opens the door and says, hey, um, I'm Tom. And if I can't put this peephole in your door in less than 30 seconds, it's free. And, And I'm thinking to myself, number one, if I had a peephole, I would not be talking to you because you look like a freaking salesperson and I don't want to talk to anybody. But I was like, well, shit, I'm trapped because I need a fucking peephole to protect myself from the next guy. (laughs) Yeah. So I was like, oh, my God. So I was like, all right. I gave him 20 bucks. And sure enough, puts a peephole in. Bam. I hand him the $20. And the guy did not stand at my door for more than two minutes. Like if I try to recollect how much time it had to been less than two minutes. But what made me totally open my eyes when I saw him drive away a brand new 1994 Toyota Supra. And the Toyota Supra in the mid 90s was the sports car. That was like the car. Like if you want to skip, you know, it was a cool ass car. And I'm sitting here thinking, here's a guy. And I watched him go from house to house. Now, he didn't go to all the houses. He just went to the houses with doors that didn't have a peephole. Like, talk about knowing who your target customer is. Does the door have a peephole? Oh, it doesn't. That's a process. Right, exactly. You could you could literally walk down the street and qualify every one of your, your the houses. That... The next time I was in Home Depot, I looked up peepholes. Back then, it was like 97 cents for a peephole. And he's got his fixed expenses are a drill bit, which is a $25 drill bit. It's not a cheap drill bit. A drill. And then these dollar peepholes, right? And so I'm literally watching this guy just printing money. And to me, the lesson was, if I use my brain and I use rapport building, I can sell if I was flat dead broke. I mean, I know tomorrow, if you took every single possession I had, I would sell my way into back into a house within three months. I mean, I I know that I could do it. And um, so... Anyway, I ended up getting a job selling phones. So you you must be thinking like, what am I doing? Like producing these beats when I should be out selling. <laughs> exactly. You know, exactly. I mean, selling your music is a totally different animal than selling a product. It is a product, but it's a totally different animal. I mean, you, you have to be focused on your image. You got to be focused on how do you get attention. And like the industry is just stacked against you, no matter how good your music is, or even how how much traction you get with like a local audience, there's the industry that gets it. So like, that was the thing that I ran into. And I was totally passionate about songwriting, music production, audio engineering. I got a degree in that when it went into, and then I, what I ran into was, okay, the only jobs are non-paying internships where it's literally like like slave labor basically in New York City, you know. And the only way to actually advance it's like hope that the person that you're replacing gets sick one day is a step in their chair. And that was just after a little while of that, I was like, I gotta go to the web and found an internship that actually does pay money. <laughs> you know, you <laughs> you know it's you know what's so crazy about you talking about that story. If you would have told me in ninety four 
that people were going to sit around and talk into a tape recorder like we're doing and talk about stories and that people would go and download them in their magical smartphone device, I would have been like, yeah, okay, whatever. So like you, I, I was into it a couple of years before smartphones, before the iPhone, before podcasts, before all these video game revolution, TV and film, these TV shows today. And I was into uh, producing music for film and like composing kind of electronic scores or stuff. But back then there was no like iPhone, no mobile apps, no TV. These days, the opportunities for that stuff, if you're into it, there are way more opportunities to actually make money with music today than there were back then. But now I'm so deep into (laughs) online business that there's just no way I can hop back into it. But um, so you get fascinated with sales. Where do you go from there? What what was kind of like your first move? Yeah. So I DJed a lot in high school. So I, I had saved a bunch of money in high school. And of course, the first semester, I blew it all. And I, I, I needed to get a, a part-time job. And I ended up getting my roommate telling me about this sales job selling phones door to door. And when I found out they paid for training for the first week, I went and did it. And it was straight up. You know, I was knocking on doors. And this is back in 94 when the people that had cell phones were, you know, doctors and attorneys and, you know, business people. And when I was knocking on doors, I was selling someone the concept that they needed a phone for safety security. That's who I was I was selling to. So I did that for like two years. You know, I learned real quick, you know, they wanted me to knock on doors at seven o'clock at night to, well, I'm sorry, like six to nine o'clock at night and do literally straight up Tupperware parties, but with phones. They call them telego parties. And literally getting people around, talk about why they should need a phone. It's like ridiculous right now. But what I learned real quick in that whole process was what they wanted me to do is go knocking on doors at night. Well, I didn't like to do that because I like to have a life and I was also in college. So I started calling on businesses and that's where people were. And so what I really did was I sold a product that the phones were terrible. They were so bad. One out of three phones I would sell, I'd have to actually go and replace. Well, what I did was because I had to constantly replace these phones, it was destroyed my time allotment. And so what I did was I turned that issue into an opportunity. And that was if someone ever called and they had a problem with their phone, I would agree to meet them at their office at lunchtime and I would fix their phone. And I always knew at lunchtime, that's where everyone was sitting around the break room talking. And that's I'd go there and I'd have an audience of people. And that's how I sold all my phones. I sold all my phones during lunch. And so, you know, one thing led to another. And then fast forward, I got a job at Nextel when Nextel launched here in Nashville. And then a year later, started my business. Okay. You were working for Nextel. Were you working for them or you opened a Nextel? Like, how did you transition from being on a sales team to running your Yeah. So two years after doing door-to-door, I got hired. Well, the, the company disbanded and I got a job in another division of the company dealing with their commercial sales department. And then I got a job at the Nextel. And then um, then I started the business about a year after I had done Nextel. And so what what was that? Like, how did you get into that? You know, I was already selling door to door to businesses and I uh, uh, decided to open up my own. It was basically an office where I still sold door to door, but it was strictly to businesses. And then I got my first retail store, you know, soon after that. Got it. So initially, you're just selling to businesses kind of outbound, if you will, like you're not opening a retail like consumer focus. And then and then you grew into the consumer space. I'm just curious, like, what does it take to open a store at that time? Like, did you have to have like a savings built up to be able to invest in that? Or like, how does that work? Well, I, when I started my business, I started with $3,000. And um, I basically sunk all my 
you know, all my profits into, you know, getting bigger and getting a bigger sales team, really the way you scale and there's lots of B2B opportunities where it's straight up selling through other people, whether you hire a, a 1099 workforce to sell or full-time salespeople, the way I grew back then was through salespeople. So I'd hire a salesperson and manage them and help build their business and teach them how I sold. And then I started getting physical retail locations. And back then, Nextel was not really a retail-based product, but we did try a store and it did very well. But, you know, one day I had, at the time, I probably had two locations that I had and one of the stores was just killing it. The other one was kind of an okay store. But I got heard a rumor that my landlord was selling the plaza. And that would mean I would lose my main store. My main source of revenue is gone. And retail, it's all about your location. If I had just a strictly B2B sales force, it's all about the salespeople. But it was a big lesson for me because I, th- I was thinking, oh, my gosh, I can't have a store. I have to have many stores and spread my risk to new locations. Like when it comes to retail, a big misconception is like it's not about the products that they're selling. They're really in the real estate business. Absolutely. And I've learned so much about real estate that my head spins. I mean, it interesting dynamic. And a lot of people say, well, no one's buying in retail anymore. I'm a friend that is a false notion. Try to find you a good retail space. It ain't cheap. If it was cheap, then I would be worried about retail's about to die. But retail... Uh, lease space is doing nothing but getting more expensive. Um, now, it doesn't mean you can't get a, you can probably get a big box old retail Kmart location for next to nothing today. But uh, the average space that we usually occupy between 1,200 and 2,500 square feet, it's definitely at a premium now more than ever. People are still out buying in retail and that shopping experience has never been you know replaced with online, uh, you know, for a lot of these people, even your friends that, that pay attention to uh, what we do online and e-commerce, you know, e-commerce is nothing new. E-commerce has been around for hundreds of years. Catalog sales affected Kmart back in the day and Walmart and all, all these other locations. You know, when catalog selling happened in the late 1800s, that was the internet back then. And, you know, think about back then, it was a more draw to use a catalog because you didn't have a car, you know? So, well, actually on that, like just to kind of jump around here and story, I mean, how do you compare selling phones and plans and phone accessories and things to both people and businesses? But how do you compare that to selling online products and software like CallProof? I'll tell you, it's for me, like with CallProof, it's an easy sell when I get an owner on the phone with the same pain that I've had in the past. So usually someone will find call proof because they had salespeople in the past. They didn't work out and they asked themselves, well, what went wrong? And they asked themselves, well, how do I hold them accountable? If they're not going to put stuff into Salesforce, how am I going to hold them accountable? And so they'll do a couple of keyword searches. And when they give us their information, when I used to take all the sales calls, it was very simple. And the, the strategy between selling and retail and selling on the phone with a business prospect is absolutely nothing different. Nothing is different because all that matters is your rapport building process from the way you call someone on the phone and speak to them. The very first moment a customer calls me, if they call me directly or they send me a lead, the few instances that I have an opportunity to hear them talk 
and me try to build a relationship with, with them over the phone and just through the name exchange is no different than I do selling on a retail floor. So what's, what's the key there? Like, are you listening to them? Are you asking the right questions? Like, how do you build rapport initially in those first few seconds? The main thing that you want to get across in so many ways before the call even happens is you want the person to be left with this thought. I have called the right person. I, you know, I want that in their head. And you're talking about an inbound call. So they came to your, so for call proof that they came to your site, that they call you up or. Exactly. So if, and when I receive a lead and I make the outbound call, I want to learn what caused the pain to give me their information. And if you know where their pain is because you've been there, done that, that's why a lot of us that are in SaaS businesses, building products to solve our own itch, we're always the best salespeople. And it's really hard to get that level of passion to come across so so an owner instantly relates to you. It's kind of hard to teach that because if you've also had your broken arm and you're also talking to someone with a broken arm, you know, it's you're able to both use the same language. And when I talk to an owner, I mean, I go right into, so tell me, uh, you know, a lot of our customers come on our website uh, because they've had issues with prior salespeople. What sparked your issue to give me your information today? And they'll go off and they'll say, you know, they'll start telling a story and it's going to put me in the right talk track to go mirror that with them. Yeah. You're going to be able to relate to them and you could genuinely relate to them. Yeah. And so, you know, the, what I, what, a lot of what I do is, is listening and then matching my stories to their story. So a lot of times it's the feel, felt, found method of selling. And that is you understand how they felt. I felt the same way. And this is what I found out how you can solve the problem. Uh, but a lot of it's the listening. I make it a huge point to do name exchange. Uh, I do this in my retail stores. I do this when I'm selling on the phone. I want them to know who my what my name is, and I'm going to use their name in conversation. So I may say Brian several times in the very outset of our conversation because I want you to know that I know your name. And there's something special about hearing your own name that you cannot describe or understand. At the end of the day, the only conversation that I have with you, Brian – that you will remember is if you spoke the most and you told me your story and you spoke 90% of the time, you will think we had a great conversation. If the salesperson walks away and they've spent all this time and energy talking and talking and talking, you usually talk yourself out of a sale. It's funny. I was listening to uh, Sherry Walling talk at the most recent microcom in Vegas. You know, she was talking about like the psychology of founders and how they relate to the business. So she, there was a study that actually showed that uh, entrepreneurs who are presented with a photo of their child, like their own son or daughter and someone else's kid. Like there's a, there's a, their brain reacts. They did some like brain analysis. Their brain reacts. It's a different way when you're looking at your own child or daughter. They did the same test when you're looking at the logo of your business versus the logo of some other business. And we relate to our own business, our own logo in the same way that we react looking at a, a photo of our son or daughter. So it's like it, there's actually like brain chemistry going on where, you know, if you're using their name or if you're using their company name or something, like they react to it differently. So still on that point about selling offline on a retail floor or selling to businesses, you know, versus selling a, a SaaS, a software solution like CallProof, it sounds like you're still fully reliant on intentionally on calling and talking to people. Is that still the primary funnel? Like the, you, every lead that comes to CallProof, you or someone on your team is getting on the phone with them. Yeah, we are. I mean, you know, unfortunately, we don't have 
the best onboarding system in the world to onboard them through beginning. And I mean, it's kind of, we kind of have a complicated. I mean, I don't, I don't think enough SaaS companies approach it that way. Too many are just intentionally trying to avoid the phone when you, you need to be talking to your customers and just make, just scale that up, you know? Oh yeah. I mean, I mean, here's the thing too. If we speak on the phone and you tell me your pain and you knew you told me your pain, you're going to feel like I am obligated to solve that as a customer. If you sign up on a website and you fill out your information and you never have any real direct, I'm not talking about an automated email sent to me. I'm talking about real direct conversation where one person told the story of why they need help. Like you're absolutely not bought in. You know, you have to prove that you're just as committed to get a customer as they are wanting to be a customer. And a lot of times if you just, yeah, yeah, life would be wonderful if I can create a money machine and just have it print money for me. Uh, but some of these SaaS businesses that are being run today, they're doing very complicated things that need the customer to give more information to make them work. You know, like, for instance, the biggest issue that a traditional CRM product has is your customer comes into an empty, deserted island. There's nothing on the island. And so we would love to be able to land on the island and find beautiful palm trees. There's a pool. Uh, there's a pool house, there's a toilet, all these things are there. But in reality, it's just sand. And you have to like literally for what we do with clients, we literally will ask them, well, tell us about your customer base, who your ideal customer is. And I'll walk to them and basically help create and find those items to put on the, the island for them. So I find their customers and literally put them there. Um, because there's no way they're going to see what life is like on this new product if there is no stuff there. Yeah, I mean, it, set it up for them on the demo. And when it's ready to go by the end, I mean, sign up and put it to use. So obviously, you, you come from a background as a strong salesperson yourself, but you've also been able to take that next step of be, being able to hire and train salespeople to do what you do and truly scale it up. I, I feel like, and I certainly struggle with this. Um, I do a lot of my own sales. I still do today. And I've dabbled here and there with training other salespeople. But how do you make that transition from doing sales yourself to being really good at training other salespeople? Well, for one, it's a trap that a lot of entrepreneurs will fall into. Or finding sales. Yeah. The, the, the trap that most people fall into when they start their business is I'm the best salesperson. No one's going to be better than me. And you know what? That's true to some extent, but there's no possible freaking way you're ever going to scale a business if you're the sales guy. It's just it. I mean- there's a guy that uh, that um, Jack Daly. Look him up. He's got a he's got a great book out there. Talks about selling, and that's one of the things he he talks about over and over. Is you absolutely cannot be the core salesperson because while you are selling, your business needs leadership, and if the business doesn't have leadership, you just cannot scale. Now. Ideal way to hire salespeople is you need to have your own play-by-play -play videotape of what success looks like. And, you know, there's a reason that NFL teams sit in film rooms and watch game tape because there's no better way to see what you're doing wrong until you actually see a replay of what you did wrong. There's just no possible way. And they're also watching at what they did right, too. So when you're looking at gameplay footage, it's the same way. That's why I tell everyone, if you're the lead sales guy in a majority of your business, just like yours is, you get leads that come in, you got to do a phone call with a guy. And you're literally 
have to do what I have to do when, when I call a lead for call proof, and that is discover what their pain point is, and you need to convince them that they've called the right place and that you are the right solution for them, or that they're the wrong, you're the wrong solution, because that could also lead to, lead to you more opportunities, believe it or not, by passing the opportunity on. You said you, you talked about earlier how it's much easier for you to relate to an owner because you're a business. And so you have that built in experience and relatability. But when you're hiring salespeople, they don't necessarily come with that. Like salespeople, I think, can be successful in a different way than, than you've been successful selling a product. Like, how do you foster that or, or get someone who doesn't have the ownership experience? Oh, you know, you, you bring up a good point because as the salesperson, they can't use some of the same language I can use. And the question is, when you listen to some of my audio recordings of sales calls or whatever I've done in the past, it's more or less, what are the questions that I'm asking is really what you have to figure out. What questions am I asking my prospect? Because the goal of the first initial conversation is to get the sales prospect to tell me what their pain points are. And my product or service, as long as it solves those pain points, I'm going to bring that later up in conversation, but my goal is to understand what the pain is, how much the pain costs them, and then figure out how my product can help them and really tell a story about what it's like to be a customer of CallProof, like use language such as, so now, Brian, so in 90 days from now, when your team's been using CallProof and you have an underperformer show up on a report that he's not doing activity, you're probably going to wonder how you should use that information. Well, I'm going to go ahead and tell you right now how you deal with that information. Because a lot of people think of call proof the wrong way. They're looking for people that are underperforming so they can tell them that they need to fire them or give them evidence to let go of someone. And I walked them through that's not what call proof is. You know, call proof is something you use, you use at noon to look at the activity done for the today and then help you decide to motivate that sales guy to get into the act of selling. And the only way you do that is use the data in the right way. My product cannot be a stick that you use against your salespeople. It's got to be all carrot. But what I do is I talk about the future that's going to happen. Brian, when you're using our service in 30 days, this is what you're going to experience. Brian, this is one of the cool things you're going to experience after you've had the service for 30 days. You're going to find people that aren't being followed up with, sales leads that came in from Google AdWords or Facebook that aren't being called and it's going to frustrate you. Well, I'm going to help be your coach and get you and show you a way to make sure those leads get called within five minutes. Because let me tell you, if they're not called in five minutes, you're not going to have a customer. And you know what? How, how soon did I call you on this call from, from the lead when you filled it out? How long did it take you to get a call? You got it right away, right? Well, listen, I'm going to teach you at your team too. And if you paint that picture to them, they're literally at the end of the call like, oh, they're checking that thing off their list. They're like, oh, get a get a CRM for my salespeople. Oh, check, done, they'll move on. Yeah, I love it. So I, I, you know, as we start to kind of wrap up here, I just want to get back to like bigger picture of like, okay, you're you're running call proof, you know, growing that SaaS company. You're you're running all these all the you know wireless stores, that kind of empire in different states and working remotely and different managers and things. Like, how do you manage your time and allocate where you're focusing your time, but then also how have you learned to delegate and put the right people in place? Like any just key aha moments there that helped you grow from, okay, I've got one store selling one product to all these different arms of my business. Things are, systems are running without me. Well, you know, 
nine years ago, I had a very important visitor come from the wireless carrier to come see my store. I had this brand new, beautiful store. I spent all this money in the store. And literally 10 people from corporate were coming to my location to see my new store. And while I was in the store getting ready, I helped this guy come in. I helped him with his phone. He had his boyfriend had broke his phone and he needed a loaner phone. He didn't have enough money for a new phone yet. So I got him a loaner phone. I uh, took a deposit on his credit card. And literally 10 minutes after he leaves, he comes right back and says, oh, I don't need any more. I give him his money back. Well, you know how credit cards work. If I swipe a $100 transaction, well, the if I refund that right away, well, the bank still keeps $100 until it settles out the next night. Well, meanwhile, all these people from the carrier comes in and they're all sitting around me and they're literally surrounding me, right? And right behind me, so I got him like in a semicircle surrounding me. And this guy comes back after he discovers that the bank is still holding his $100. And you would have thought it was the last $100 this guy had to his name. And it meant that he was absolutely going to be, I mean, he's going to be homeless, right? And he just goes off on me. And so it was the most embarrassing, humbling experience to go through because I looked like a complete idiot and it was it wasn't anything I had done or it wasn't my fault but the reality was I was working too much in the business and had I not been working in the business that customer would have never came across me never talked to me I mean to take it to an extreme I was in a store a couple of days ago and I'm in the back and, and a customer there our team was short staff. We just acquired the location. I'm trying to get new people to, to go in that store. And I have a team to do that. But we were just visiting the store. And this guy come up to me and goes, you look like one of the owners here. I got a question. I go, man, I'm so sorry. I'm one of the IT guys. <laughs> and I'm like, because I've learned my lesson. I love to help people, but I'm not really doing anything for the business if I'm doing such low leverage activities where people are there. I mean, that what I've learned in the last year is, you know, I added a partner. He came aboard. He's my CFO. He is way better at the financial side of the ledger than I ever will be. And so he's strong. I've hired a uh, partner for my uh, my app for carpooling. And he's leading that. I have a guy that's leading call proof. So, you know, I've, I've moved my, my world revolves around really, you know, three things. And, you know, one is I think, I learn, and I coach. And those are things I'm good at. And so I can coach every member of my team. And so the, like the operations and the management has all been kind of delegated out to partners and then managers. Yeah. And, you know, video is the most underutilized tool that we have. We think video, when we think video, we think of an explainer video on our website, right? Well, it's more than that because there's so much I can teach on video I mean, I've, I put out a video internally every day, whether I'm recognizing sales staff or I'm working with my team to train them on a new strategy or something that we're doing in our store. I use video constantly. 
Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm kind of curious about this because I, you know, you, you've taken it to a level far beyond where I've taken it to with audience ops, where I have a, a team and I've got a couple of managers in place. We've got really nailed down process, but there are still like today, there's still things that come up like fires that need to be put out where the process just broke down or a manager didn't know how to deal with a certain situation and it escalated me. And I feel like I'm every week I'm working on like, how can this escalation not happen again? How how can I make it so I'm not getting pulled back into? And sometimes it's like the process didn't break down. It's just somebody didn't really follow it or they didn't get up to speed on the new change or like that. Like, how do you deal with that stuff where, where it's somebody else is responsible for it, but things break down? Like, what? where do you get pulled into things, if, if at all? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, there's a really good strategy that a lot of people don't think about. We all think about drip email in terms of acquiring a customer. Customer comes on our sales funnel and we drip them email until we drive them crazy and they sign up or they, they unsubscribe, right? Well, the problem with most organizations is you have this structure that you build and then things fall out of place. You know, a, a process gets broken because of an oddity. And what happens in most organizations, you go, oh, here's an oddity. You email the team and says, if you see this oddball thing happen again, this is what you're supposed to do. But this is what happens in most organizations. You hire another hire next week, three months down the road, 10 months down the road. They didn't get to hear that oddity. And so what I do when anything weird happens in the organization, we do a video about it and we put it as a part of our drip email that we give every new hire when they come to work. They get 30 different emails with different topics. And we hope the new hire will hear this. But so that's a good way to use the, the drip email because this is what I tell everyone. If it's happening in one location, it's happening in all of them. Just assume it is. If you have one employee that's screwing up this right. particular thing, you have to assume everyone's kind of doing that. Yeah. You know, I had a, a quick story. My neighbor across the street from my house, um, a few months ago, I was laying and taking a nap on a Sunday and I hear these fire engines and I hear one fire engine and it's like loud, really loud. I'm like, God, it sounds like they're across the street. And then I heard another engine and another engine. I finally was like, I need to go outside and see what's going on. Well, my neighbor's house is literally on fire. And my neighbor is standing outside with his uh, nine-year-old daughter and his wife. And the fire engines were pulling in. The guys are suiting up. And while this is happening, I noticed how well run this fire department was. There was a guy with the oxygen tanks that all his job was to stack oxygen tanks by the front door. There was another guy that had the suits. By this time, you know, all the neighbors are gathering around and we're thinking to ourselves, well, how do we help? Well, let's go get some water. Well, right before we got water, there was another guy with the cooler that came up and they had all these, these things were happening simultaneously, right? They were just, just happening. Well, we soon discover as a neighbor that their dog was still in this house and his daughter was really upset because she had this new, this new puppy dog in this house. It's on fire. Right. And these, these firemen go in there and sure enough, they bring this dog who is limp and dead. And, you know, the firefighter is holding this puppy and it's, I mean, it's literally smoking because it's been in this fire. And of course uh, the father grabs the daughter and walks away, but under the corner, there was a, a firefighter that gave um, CPR to this dog, but he had all the gear. He was waiting for this puppy. Like the whole mission was not the house. It was like, get the puppy and try to do CPR. 
And so we watched this happening. And it, when, you know, the firefighter concluded that there was no way to save this puppy, there was another person, another fireman with a blanket to hold the dog after it was found. That it, and it's like, and they had thought of, they knew all the things that were going to happen. Because when you stop and think about, imagine you tried to save the puppy and suddenly they pull this puppy out and then they're out looking in the fire engine for the CPR mask. And, you know, where did they put it? You know, they had it out. They were ready. You know, once they d- determined they couldn't save the puppy, imagine what it would have been like to hold a dead puppy. Uh, where do I put the dead puppy? You put it in a blanket. It's a way to present it back to the family. They had thought of all of those things. And what was remarkable about it, after all this had concluded, the fire chief pulled up. And his work happened before all that other shit. All that other stuff that happened, he had prepared for it. And the reminder of this story is we have to be fire chiefs. If we want to be firefighters, then go get a job somewhere else. But our job as an entrepreneur is we have to be the fire chiefs. We're teaching them how to fight the fire before the fire ever starts. It's genius. I mean, what, what a story there. Um, Robert, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for uh, for sharing that. I know that we can probably have like five more episodes of digging into <laughs> the different parts of this. So uh, really insightful stuff as always. Thank you so much. Obviously, check out callproof.com. Where else can folks kind of connect with you? Uh, you can uh, get me on the... Facebook. I'm, I'm a Facebook guy. I don't get on anything else. Please reach out. All right. Very cool. Yep. We'll, uh, we'll link all that up in the show notes and yeah, thanks. Thanks, Brian. Okay. That wraps it up. Did you enjoy this one? I mean, it couldn't have been that bad. You made it this far into the episode, right? So head over to iTunes, leave a five-star review. I'd really appreciate it. And if you're not on my newsletter yet, there's a lot more happening over there. And so you'll definitely want to get up to speed. You can join over on my site, castjam.com. Have a great week. Mm -hmm.